This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, brought to you by 180TAC. Get out there and have some fun. Episode 248, Frank and Brittany Concella on 14er skiing and public lands access issues. Hello and welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. This is your host, Kurt Linville. Today I have returning guests, Frank and Brittany Consella with us, and they are here to talk about something that we all in the Adventure Sports community hold dear, and that is about access, trail access, access to the wonderful places that we like to go and do the sports that we do. But before we dive into our discussion about that, I want to talk a little bit about what Frank and Brittany are up to. This couple has skied every 14er in Colorado, which is just fantastic and amazing to me. Not an easy thing to do, so we're going to share a little bit about that. They also are writing a book on backcountry skiing to help people find routes around the state, and we'll be able to visit a little bit about that. Frank and Brittany, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. You bet. So your previous episode, when you were here before, it ended up being two episodes, and that was 106 and 107. And that was all about skiing the 14ers, and awesome. I encourage our listeners, go back and listen to those really, really cool stuff. Today, we're going to touch on the 14er skiing because it's so cool, but go back and listen to those original episodes. But we're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about access issues. How do we get access to the places where we love to do the adventure sports? How have you guys been? Well... Oh, yeah, we're we're doing great. Um, just doing our thing, having a good time, skiing, biking, and and uh, yeah. So Frank and Brittany live in Crested Butte, Colorado, which is an amazing place. And I understand you guys have had an amazing ski season this year. This has been a this has been a yeah. They they keep calling it Snowmageddon, and uh, it's been pretty fun to see all the streets just just buried. And of course, the ski area is as good as it's been, and uh, we've got a nice deep fairly stable snowpack for uh for the rest of the year to look forward to so it's it's been a good one so frank and Brittany, i know you guys love to ski inbounds and out of bounds do you prefer skiing a 14er or skiing at crested butte (laughs) uh i would say for me that totally depends on uh on the day uh obviously a a powder day at ski area is an awful lot of fun but uh you know it's also a great accomplishment on a on a really fun 14er to to make it happen and I guess that would be mine. You, Brittany? Yeah, I mean, I think backcountry skiing in general is, is provides more challenges, and when you can overcome those challenges, um, it's kind of more more fun than just skiing the resort. But I think you get benefits from both, and, and you know, it's both are really awesome. Well, I knew you guys would appreciate both, and I'm kind of with you. I like being in the backcountry or at the ski area probably about equally as well, but sometimes I lean toward the backcountry just because of the quiet and the sense of achievement that you get out of it, but you don't get as many downhill verts in a day for sure. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you get better better practice skiing some of the terrain, of course, by doing laps of the resort, so that's how you get better. Yeah, good point. So it, it makes a lot of sense to ski the resort a lot so that when you get to the backcountry, you'll be better equipped for the terrain. Absolutely. Well, cool. Have you had any epic backcountry trips this year? You know, it's been snowing so much that uh, I've been skiing the ski area a lot more than normal. So it's it's been pretty limited. Um, I've only been been a half dozen times, but I've probably doubled the number of days that I usually have at the ski area by this time of year. So um, 
no epics thus far and, and hopefully no big epics. Well, only the good kind of epics. <laughs> and unfortunately, I am unable to ski this year. I tore my ACL and I ended up having surgery in November, so I am still recovering. Well, Brittany, we're sorry to hear that. And of course, I knew about that before I asked the question. So it wasn't even nice of me, but I hope that uh, you're healing up well. Yeah. Yep, I am. You know, it seems like that's a very common injury with skiers. Was it skiing that caused that? Um, This time around, I'm not exactly sure when I tore it. I found out that it was torn in July, and it had already been repaired once before. So um, they actually ended up having to do two surgeries, what's called a staged procedure, um, where they went in and, and basically undid the work of the previous surgery and filled in the tunnels in my bone. Um, and that happened in August. And then the second surgery in November was to repair the actual ACL. Wow. Well, I wish you all the best with that. You'll be back up and at them by next season, I would expect. Yeah, for sure. I'm yeah. looking forward to it. Real briefly, let's talk about skiing 14ers, just kind of the bullet points, because like I said, our listeners need to go back to episode 106 and 107 to hear the details. But what is it like to ski 14ers? Uh, I mean, it, it's it's like any, um, you know, a 14er is, is like any big um, backcountry mountain or any, I should say, just any ski mountaineering objective. It doesn't have to, you know, of course, be a 14er, but um, there just tend to be bigger lines and more vert and longer days. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's um, it's one that takes a little bit more planning than just your standard uh, backcountry day at, you know, Berthoud Pass or something like that. Brittany, you got anything else to add? You, because of their elevation, I think you spend a little bit more time um, above treeline too, which is always to us an added benefit, but you have to be a little bit more wary of the avalanche danger because sometimes it tends to creep to higher levels above treeline. Sure. I, I'm going to be really candid here. Skiing on the big backcountry mountains is a little bit scary to me, and I think it's because I'm just really avalanche sensitive, perhaps. I, uh, I've had a, a couple of near misses with avalanches, and so it kind of spooks me. How do you guys do it safely? Well, the main main thing is that the vast majority of the time, you're not doing it until April and May. And uh, in April and May, it becomes a little bit simpler. Usually, all you're really concerned about is, is the heat of the day. And as long as you get a really early start, you should be okay. So that's that's the primary thing that, that happens on, a, on bigger objectives is that you have to wait until spring. Um, it's pretty rare that you can ski bigger lines, you know, midwinter in Colorado, just because of the continental snowpack. Um, this year has been a little bit different. We have had so much snow and it's been a wetter snow that that people have been getting out onto some, some, uh, big Alpine lines this year, but, um, that's the exception and not the norm. So what you're saying really is you wait for the snow to consolidate so that the avalanche danger just goes way, way, way down. And and that's really when the, the 14 er skiing is, is the best. Exactly. Yeah. 14er skiers, uh, 14er skiing season really just starts, um, about the time that most of the skiers start to close, honestly. That's (laughs) That's, perfect timing. That's the start of the second season. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I was hoping to climb a 13er, um, in the next couple of weeks, but it has been abnormally warm on our side of the mountains and there is a marked slide layer now. There's just a lot of glazing that the sun has created and we have a new storm moving in, which is going to dump could be a foot or two of snow up there. So this is probably the worst time to try to go up a mountain right now. Yeah, it could be if, if that snow does come in. 
If I wanted to ask you specifically about skiing some of the more difficult 14ers, I know that people that climb 14ers are thinking, wait, they skied all of them. That means that they did South Maroon, Pyramid, Capital. I mean, how do you ski these peaks? They're pretty radical mountains, even in the summertime. I think the key is going back to making sure that you're used to skiing steep lines, which is part of the reason why we love skiing in Crested Butte, because, you know, we get practice all year long skiing steep terrain in bounds. So when we're exposed to it out of bounds, it doesn't even phase us. Mm, Okay. When you skied, let's pick South Marin. Did you, uh, I know the route finding has to be really important, but it, you know, I remember climbing and there's an awful lot of, of uh, like cliff shelf stuff, or you could ski the, the Kular between North and South Marin, perhaps. What was your route? Yeah, I ended up basically skiing that east face into the bell cord that goes between North and South Maroon. Uh, Frank did a different line. Yeah, I, I actually did that one from Crested Butte, so up and over West Maroon, or sorry, uh, Frigidaire Pass into Fravert Basin, and then there's a core on the south side of uh, Maroon, and that's that's almost a direct shot to the summit. Near the near the top, you've got a couple of little cliff bands to to sneak around here and there, but it's it's a uh, actually a more straightforward route um other than a much longer approach than uh than what Brittany did but we also made sure to ski them pretty late in the year uh, i i skied south maroon in june and I, I think frank skied it in june or late may i think it was late may yeah so by then like we were talking about earlier we really only had wet slides to worry about if at all um and getting on that route early enough before wet slides become a potential was also a key what about capital? We skied that one uh, actually separately from each other as well. Um, let's see. I did it. Uh, we did it as an overnight, and that was probably early May, I think. Uh, but we we went into um, the Pierre Lakes Basin and ended up climbing um, a route that we ended up calling the Secret Chute, and that kind of comes in right at the end of what everyone calls the Knife Edge Ridge, and from there, then you've got the base, and uh, that one's that one was certainly the most difficult one that that, that I did, um, and it was the only one that we we did use a rope for. Um, and then Brittany did a actually, I guess he did the same thing, but <laughs> yeah, I did the same route. But so when when Frank didn't did it, I couldn't join him because of work constraints. So he ended up skiing that line without me, but with some other good friends of ours. And uh, when he was finished with the hard part of the route, he still had cell phone service. So he was actually able to call me from pretty close to the top of the mountain, but he had skied the hard part already and was on his way back down to his base camp. And he's like, yeah, yeah, we did it. Um, and and he said, but I have bad news for you. Uh-oh. And I was like, what? He's like, I'm not coming back and skiing this one with you. You're going to have to find your own partners. So he, you know, it just made him uncomfortable enough that he just didn't want to go back and be at, you know, have that same exposure again and, and put himself in that, that same circumstance again. So I ended up skiing that one without him. Well, you know, I have only skied two 14ers. I think maybe we mentioned that on the last show, but one of them was Mount Evans and I skied a, a kind of a trough that was above a, a cliff face drop. And if you missed a turn and went down, the penalty was a little too high. And I was young and nutty enough to try it. But the reason I bring it up is because I can't imagine climbing all the 14ers and skiing down them all without having to find yourself in that situation several times. How scary were the lines on average? I, well, I mean, for me, like, like for instance, with, 
with capital, the reason I didn't want to do it is I just didn't enjoy the way up. The way down was fine for me. Um, and even on oh, on any of them, on North Maroon, on Pyramid, I actually tended to enjoy the skiing, even if it was steep and exposed. But, you know, that's that's uh, something to do with me having skied since I was three years old and growing up ski racing, and, and I feel super comfortable on skis. It's, it's the climbing that scares me. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, every time. Yeah, and, <laughs> and that's true for both of us. I mean, that's why we tend to actually, some of the harder peaks, we tended to go out with people who had slightly stronger mountaineering skills than us. Um, who were maybe slightly less comfortable on the descent, but, you know, together we balanced each other out. I kind of want to ask you more of a general question. I feel like, you know, backcountry, big mountain skiing, whether it's a a 14er or just any other mountain that people get on, I think it takes special equipment, special training, and uh, special experience for sure. I know that some of our listeners are probably interested in trying it. What advice would you have for them? Uh, you know, I mean, it's all the standard stuff. Certainly would want to take an avalanche course. You'd, um, might want to even be guided for a first one, or at the very least, you know, have a good friend with a lot more experience, uh, mentor you, uh, up one of the easier ones and, and start slow that way. And for equipment, you know, you definitely need your normal beacon shovel probe avalanche sort of gear, but you also added to that when you're doing more ski mountaineering oriented lines you should probably add uh ice axe and crampons to the mix yeah i'm sure what about staying warm you know if you're if you're going at the time of the year that you guys primarily go it should be a little warmer although some freak weather could really cool things off but do you have any recommendations for people just to be safe from hypothermia layers the key is layers you know because you you know in the spring especially you can go through these huge temperature variations and you can get so sweaty, and then the next moment it's windy and you're freezing. So, you know, just so many different layers. Um, you know, usually I bring a base layer, then a layer to put on top of that, then a light jacket, then a shell, and I'll also carry a down jacket with me. Even in, in late spring when it's pretty warm, I always carry a down jacket because you never know what, what you're going to find yourself getting into. Um, so... Um, and then another thing is the hands, they can get super sweaty while you're climbing. Um, so, you know, having more than one pair of gloves or mittens is really important. I usually bring three, um, three pairs of gloves. And there's many times in, on longer routes, especially, that I'll use all three. Wow. Yeah, I can see that. I soaked a glove on a uh, snow caving trip once, and I only had one pair on that trip. And I realized very quickly how important it is <laughs> to have a spare pair of gloves and socks, for that matter. Yeah, yeah. The, the socks in the spring. I don't normally bring um, an extra pair of socks most of the winter, but come May and June, I usually do carry an extra pair of socks on the longer days. If it's if it's a uh, if I think it's going to take eight, eight hours or longer, having that extra pair of socks, especially when you're kind of done with the the bulk of your skiing and and you're kind of walking the rest of the way out, it's so nice to be able to change into a dry pair of socks. Yeah, no doubt. Well, you don't only do 14ers, right? You guys enjoy the backcountry all the time on skis. And just kind of in general, again, for our listeners, what is it like to go into a wilderness in the wintertime on skis and to experience nature in that way? Um. You know, it's it's so nice to be at one with the mountains. I mean, they're towering all around you. They humble you. 
Um, and it's so wonderful to experience the quiet and, um, you know, just, just everything that's around. Frank, what does it do for you? Why do it? Well, uh, you know, for me, it's, it's, uh, just an ongoing process. One of the things that, that inevitably happens if I ski, you know, a mountain I haven't skied before, I'll probably look over the next ridge and I'll, I'll see the next mountain that I want to ski the next time I go out or, or whatever. And, and that, that's probably the part that I look forward to the most is constantly, um, exploring. It would be the one, the one word it's, it's all exploration. You know, Frank, you mentioned that you've been skiing since you're three, so it probably just feels like your natural environment to you. But imagine for a minute, um, that you grew up in South Texas and that you go out for the first time. What do you think the impact would be? Well, if you grew up in South Texas, hopefully you'd been skiing Iscaria for a, a while and getting a little <laughs> caught up on your uh, on your ski skills. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be having much fun at all. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, I, it, and it is relatable to other sports. Uh, you know, if 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 uh, you've done a lot of hiking in the backcountry, you'll get some of those same feelings. Same thing with um, you know, more of an adventure style mountain bike ride that you, that leaves you way out there or kayak trip to a real remote canyon all those things kind of get you out there and that's uh that's the thing if so if you haven't done that before you're really gonna your eyes are gonna be wide open but if you're used to doing some of these other outdoor sports you're you're probably feeling some of the similar you know aspects of of just being uh pretty deep out there as, as we like to call it. I remember one of my first experiences really being out there when I was a kid. Uh, I grew up in Ohio, so I didn't have quite as much outdoor experience as Frank had when he was a kid. But my dad decided that it was a good idea to take me on my first backpacking trip when I was 12 to Alaska. So it's not like he took me to the Appalachians or something closer like that. He took me all the way to Alaska. So we went way out there and hiked for miles and miles and miles every day. I think our first hike um, on my first day of backpacking was 17 miles. Whoa. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. So we, I got broken in pretty hard. <laughs> um, but anyway... I just remember um, being out there and just everything was so much more peaceful and quiet on a level that I'd never experienced before. And I enjoyed it being out there. But then I think the hardest part was actually going back home because I didn't know how to process all the noise and everything that was happening at such a fast pace anymore. Well, I, I think that's a beautiful description. It's just so different you know, when you're out in nature like that. And I wanted our listeners to get to hear your perspective on it. A lot of our listeners do this sort of stuff all the time, but we have many listeners who are hoping to. And so to hear the the field report from you guys, we appreciate that. Thanks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Founded and operated in Colorado, Catabatic Gear is driven by the premise that ultralight backpacking equipment should be made lighter through innovative design and advanced materials, not by simply stripping components. With intuitive features and the best, most advanced materials, Catabatic Gear's sleeping bags, backpacks, and accessories strike the perfect balance between ultralight weights and ultimate comfort that will change the way you think about backpacking. If you are considering lightening the load on your next backpacking trip, check out some of their award-winning gear at catabaticgear.com. That's K-A-T-A-B-A-T-I-C gear.com. Bentgate Mountaineering, located in Golden, Colorado, has been outfitting backcountry travelers for the last 20 years. Winter is in full swing, and it's prime time to check out the latest in alpine touring, telemark, NTN, and split boarding gear. Bentgate carries the premier brands, including... Black Crows, DPS, Dinafit, 
G3, Icelandic, K2, Rocky Mountain Underground, Rosignol, Solomon, Voli, Never Summer, and Jones. With more people in the backcountry than ever, it's crucial to be prepared. Bentgate has the latest in avalanche safety gear from beacons to airbags. Come in and they will set you up with the proper gear and point you in the right direction to educate yourself on snow safety. If you don't own the gear, Bentgate offers a full range of rental and demo equipment, including the latest skis, boots, split boards, beacons, shovels, and probes. Bentgate also hosts free demo ski days at local resorts to give you a hands-on opportunity to ride the latest gear. Be sure to check bentgate.com for their full product selection as well as updates on all of their events. Well, let's transition a little bit. Frank, you and Brittany live in Crested Butte, Colorado, like I said, and it's a wonderful place. Frank, I know that you're a realtor there, and uh, you found a way to earn a living in a resort town. Such a wonderful place. Tell us just a little bit about uh, what Crested Butte's like and what you know what it's like to live there. Sure. Well, uh, yeah, I visited Crested Butte in what was my freshman year at at, uh, CU in Boulder and uh, ended up living here um, what should have been my sophomore year and then went back to CU and uh, just the way it it happened I I just I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life so I moved right back here because I just love so much about this place Um, I love the ski area I love how steep it is there's there's no other place in Colorado that, that that has steep terrain like this uh and then the longer you live here the more you realize um how special the community is, you know, if something were to ever happen to one of us or, or, or things have happened to our friends, um, you know, everybody just rallies together and, and that's, that sense of community is, is, is harder to find in, in bigger places. And, and that's a really big key of, of living here for me, for sure. So that's, that's why I'm here. <laughs> sure. Well, I know that some of our listeners may want more information. How can they get in touch with you to talk about real estate? <laughs> Thanks for that. Yeah, my uh, my website would be crestedbutterealestateagent.com, and uh, I've got a ton of information on there about, about the different neighborhoods in the area, um, as well as down in Gunnison and, and Almont, and be happy to answer anyone's questions who, who uh, have any questions at all about what it's like to live here. Right. I know, Brittany, that you have taken up a uh, a special project about access and, you know, getting into the backcountry year-round for all different types of sports. You know, that's really important to you and to Frank. But tell us a little bit, just kind of as, as an introduction, about why you got involved with this access discussion. What's going on? So I'm the president of a local nonprofit called Share the Slate, and it's based out of Crested Butte. And basically, it our mission is to protect winter access and promote the shared interests of all user groups within our local public lands. So basically, where it starts out is that we have some groups, um, you know, threatening 
our access to our public lands. So specifically, they would like to see some of our our um, forest service roads or county roads that become winter trailheads in winter because they're not plowed in winter. Um, they would like to see them blocked off to motorized access. However, we believe that, um, you know, the, the roads are motorized and they should continue to be motorized um, through the winter because they're motorized in summer and they allow us to maintain our access through the winter to these beautiful places that we like to all go and experience. We don't believe in limiting that experience to just some limit, uh, some users. We believe in keeping them open to all users. So just kind of as an overview, uh, the Forest Service manages land on a, a variety of different levels and we have wilderness areas which are non-motorized year-round, and uh, wilderness designations provide a wonderful, you know, pristine wilderness experience for people that want to go in via backpacking or on horseback. You can't even ride a bicycle in those areas. And then we have uh, areas in the Forest Service that are open to vehicular traffic, motorcycles, ATVs, and that sort of thing. And these are the types of roads that you're talking about. But what you're saying is that people are trying to ban motorized use in the wintertime. So I guess you're you're talking about primarily snowmobiles or snowcats, that sort of thing. Yeah, precisely. So from a backcountry skiing perspective, I mean, there's multiple perspectives you can look at this from, but um, what's most sincere to us is the backcountry skiing because um, we use snowmobiles to access um, our terrain so much. So we will go out, you know, miles up a dirt road um, and then park our snowmobiles and then go skiing and skinning from there. Now, why is that beneficial to us? Well, in our local terrain, we often find a much deeper snowpack um, miles into the mountains. And so with a deeper snowpack comes actually a safer snowpack because it's less prone to um, temperature variations that can cause uh, faceting of the snowpack, which therefore just makes it more prone to avalanches. Oh, so, um, so it's actually – so getting there um, – you know, getting deeper access to our mountains is actually safer for our backcountry skiing. Let's back up to maybe the 10,000 foot level and talk kind of about access and access issues in general. And then I want to dive right back down to what locally is going on um, and what your organization is doing to contribute to the discussion there. But I guess, you know, I grew up in Oklahoma and there are very few public lands. There are a handful of state parks, some game management areas, and then, of course, there are lakes and, and rivers that people like to boat on. But besides that, there's not a lot that's public, you know, managed. And so I grew up in an area where either you had to have your own land to play on or you had to get permission from someone to have a place to go if you wanted to camp or hunt or fish or hike. Um but here in Colorado, it's completely different. Describe what the public land system is like in the West. Sure. So, I mean, in the end, the reason that, that people live in places like Crested Butte or, or any mountain town throughout the West uh, is the public lands. Um, whether they're, you know, deriving their, their income from tourism of the people who are coming in to visit um, or, or they're just, I mean, that's why we live here is so we can go outside and, and play, whether it's hiking, biking, fishing, all of that is the reason that people both live here and visit here. Um, so for that 
to be manipulated in any way is is a huge concern for anyone living in the Mountain West, which is where most public lands lands are. You know, I think that the public lands that we do have in the United States are just an amazing, valuable treasure for for everyone. You know, you can say for U.S. citizens because they're held in common. They're called public for a reason, right? But also sure. for people that visit from other countries, uh, just such a beautiful resource that we are blessed with these open places where we can go experience nature and its vastness. And uh, wow, it's just amazing to me that access is a challenge. And I'm not going to claim Frank and Brittany to be any sort of an expert on this, but, you know, our, our Forest Service manages access to a lot of the lands. We also have uh, BLM land, the Bureau of Land yep. Management, that, you know, manages a lot of, of public lands as well. And it really goes to the Forest Service to make some of those tough calls, right, about how the the public land should be used by the population. So what can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, we can back up a bit, I guess. So uh, what the Forest Service does is they um, they need to do uh, travel management plans, and those are those are multi-year processes that take quite a while to do. Um, and they've always done those in the summer. So we, you know, in our local area, we recently went through one, and they they identify roads that maybe need to be closed, trails that maybe shouldn't be open for everybody, um, and they go through them, and and then they. They uh, come up with different alternatives, and people decide what, uh, you know, there's a long comment period. Some of those alternatives will be, you know, heavily skewed towards, you know, anything goes, ATVs, dirt bikes, anything. And the other one will be, you know, close it down to almost anything. And usually, you know, they their, alt, their preferred alternative is what it's usually called will be somewhere in the middle. So that's always happened in the summer. And in the winter, it hadn't quite worked that way. But what, what has happened in 2015 there was a lawsuit by the Winter Wildlands Alliance claiming that the Forest Service needed to basically do the same thing in winter for on-snow vehicles is what they call them, um, which is, like you said, basically snowmobiles, um, snowcats, everything like that. So the Forest Service is going to have to go through and uh, and decide where, you know, what uses are appropriate where. And that's kind of what led led to our discussion and our um, nonprofit because we're, we're really trying to keep what we currently have so that we can access all these all these areas that we've been going to for, for years. So essentially, kind of to summarize what he's saying is there's a summer travel management plan from the Forest Service, but now the Forest Service also has to develop winter travel management plans as separate from the summer ones. Mm, okay. I would like for us to talk just a little bit about the impact of some Forest Service decisions. And I think the the impact can be positive and negative, right? Um, but sure. I wanted to share a couple of, of areas in the front range here that have changed over the years. Uh, one is, is Brainerd Lake. It's a beautiful, scenic area with roads, paved roads, actually, that drive up into a basin in front of some of the most spectacular peaks on the edge of the Indian Peaks Wilderness. And there are beautiful lakes in the area with amazing precipitous backdrops. I mean, it it is a gorgeous area. Uh, 20 years ago, that area, the management for it was, if you wanted to spend the night, there is a voluntary pay five bucks, you know, for a campsite. So there was a post in the ground with a slot in it and a sign that says pay here. And 20 years ago, that was the way it was managed. And there weren't that many people. It was not crowded, and everybody just went and enjoyed it. Over the years, it gained a lot more popularity. And, I mean, this stuff is on on caliber with 
national parks as far as the beauty is concerned, just a little bit smaller. And so they uh, they put up a larger fee station and started asking people to pay just to go in, not just to camp. And now they've put up a fee station with a gated booth that's staffed. And not only do you have to pay to go in, but they've established designating parking slots, and you can only park in a parking slot. And once those lots are full, there's nowhere to park. And they tell you at the gate, it's full, sorry, come back another day. And it turned into now more expensive paid access, uh, such limited parking that it's very, very difficult to go enjoy what's in that area on any given weekend in the front range. Uh, If you're not there early, you don't get to play. So a big change from almost open access to now very limited and controlled access. The reason I bring it up is because it's probably better for the Brainerd Lake ecology the way they're managing it now. But it was also a lot more fun (laughs) a few years ago when the access was more open to the public. And I'm not going to come down on either side of that debate other than to say the Forest Service had to manage it, and this is where we've ended up. And uh, now I kind of avoid going there because it's a real challenge to get in and do what you want to do. So while it it might be better for the management of the forest, I kind of feel like it excludes an awful lot of people too. So what are your thoughts about that balance? The Forest Service has a big responsibility. They do. I mean, and and that is a a balance. I also think, um, you know, the more you limit some of the access, you struggle with it because then it it does end up sometimes condensing people to certain places um, more than others. Um, The Brainerd Lake area, I mean, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's absolutely beautiful. Um, And I think it's, it's unique in its own way. Um, And they, you know, and I, I think just so much of it is kind of just a local issue. And, and I'm glad that the forest service actually ends up making decisions that are local based. Um, But, you know, I mean, it, it is it is a hard thing to balance, but I think that they have to watch out about limiting access because if they do limit access, they can start driving people to one place more than others. And um, I think the whole point of our public lands is to teach people to love the outdoors. And so it ha- has to strike a good balance for both. Yeah, I think that's well said. And uh, I'm not trying to slight the Forest Service. It's a big job. And it's tough, you know, managing the lands. But the one thing I like to stress, and this is my own bias, they are public lands. They're held in common by the citizens of the United States of America. And the Forest Service Charter is for the Forest Service to manage those lands for the good of all citizens and future citizens. So, you know, it's a big job. It's a tough call to make sometimes, I'm sure. Right. Right, exactly. Your, uh, you know, your story about Brainerd that would that would lead me to a, a summertime uh, issue here. When the Forest Service did go through their travel management plan here, it was interesting. They they had a trail slated for for closure. And the interesting thing about that trail is that that was kind of a, a hush hush local secret trail. Um, I had a roommate who wanted to be shown that trail, and and his friend was like, "Oh, I can't show that to you yet. You haven't lived here for ten years," which was ridiculous. <laughs> but, uh, but it, that's how that trail was. And, uh, you know, so when the Forest Service came out with their preferred plan, they, they were going to shut that trail down. And uh, thankfully, as it ended up, they got, you know, a hundred some letters saying, no, 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 this this is a great trail. You have to leave this open. 
And uh, speaking with some some people I know in the Forest Service, they were like, wow, we didn't even know you guys knew about that trail, let alone that you wrote it and let alone that you love it. So um, thankfully, that trail, you know, is still open today. But that just goes on the other end of, you know, Brainerd was maybe being loved to death, whereas, you know, other trails can just be um, kept too secret and then they don't have anyone to defend them, um, you know, from from being closed or or other uh, other ways of not being able to do it anymore. Well, this is purely speculative on my part, but I would imagine that the Forest Service has a little bit of a challenge getting feedback from the people that use a lot of the Forest Service lands. Because people come, they go, they don't talk to the Forest Service much. And so I think any time that people can provide feedback to the Forest Service, it's got to make their job a lot easier and help them to make uh, better balanced decisions. Right, exactly. The comment periods are key for, for any of the, any of the um, management of forest service lands. It's all about that comment period. Uh, and that's, that's when they, that's when they learn what people think. Mm. If you're thinking about your future, think about Fort Lewis college in Durango, Colorado. Think a beautiful mountain campus where hiking, biking, kayaking, and snow riding are right outside your door. Think a friendly community buzzing with music, arts, events, and sports. Think faculty mentors, real research, and professional experiences that prepare you to both make a living and make a life. If you think college should be an adventure, think Fort Lewis College. See for yourself at fortlewis.edu. The 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to bulky and fragile gas-burning camp stoves. The 180 Flame utilizes fewer parts with minimal weight and maximized reliability. The locking tab and slot design means there are no hinges, welds, or rivets to fail you in the field. Cook your food and boil water quickly using only small amounts of natural fuels including twigs, grass, pine cones, and leaves. Weighing just 6.4 ounces, the 180 Flame is the ideal alternative to a backpacking stove. You can find your new Flame at 180tac.com or a retailer near you. 180 Flame. Think big, pack small. You know, I have to say one more thing, and then I want to dive into the specifics of what's going on there in Crested Butte. But the thing I want to say for our listeners is most of the time when the Forest Service feels pressure to close off access to an area, it's because people have abused nature in that area. And I point that out because, you know, it's probably 1% of people who just don't know, who out of ignorance, start destroying ecosystems and damaging nature in a way that nature has a difficult time recovering from. So I want to throw that out there because it's the 1% that causes the access issues for the rest of us, I really believe. And if we can help to educate people and provide them with an understanding of how nature works and the balance of these ecosystems and how to care for nature while we enjoy it, I think that uh, it can go a long way to protecting access for everyone. That's so true. Well, let's dive into what's going on locally there. So your organization is sharetheslate.com. That's where people can learn more information. But specifically, what's going on there, Brittany? Um, basically, we, Frank kind of gave a background about how um, the 
the Forest Service has to reevaluate our winter travel management plan. And, um, you know, right now it's slated to happen years from now, but we do have groups who would like to see it um, reevaluated earlier than that. Um, we do have a current winter travel management and plan in our local area, which is a little bit unusual because not every, not every zone in the Forest Service has a winter travel management plan. Um, but ours is typically referred to the Gang of Nine local decision, and it was established in 1995. And it basically governs the use for all of our local drainages. Um, so basically, we have many dirt roads that go out from town and, and uh, you know, basically town of Crested Butte and Mount Crested Butte and towards CB South. And all of those have some more or less designated use that was established in 1995. Um, so, you know, we're trying to, we believe that the, that our travel management plan that is in existence is doing well for our needs as it is, and that it doesn't really need to be reevaluated and that our access should not be changed in any way, shape or form. Mm, okay. And I have to point out that while Crested Butte is very popular as a ski area in the wintertime and for mountain biking and backpacking and things like that in the summer as well, it's still not a super heavily trafficked area like a lot of the front range mountains might be. And I think that you know, that really opens up an opportunity to keep more access open because it's not being overused. That would certainly be our contention, yes. Mm, okay. And, you know, you will see our trailheads get pretty packed. I mean, you described the scenario at Brainerd Lake. Um, and we've been to Brainerd Lake and um, in recent years, and um, we've seen those those parking lots completely full. Um, and ours do get full, but they're not as big as, as the ones in Brainerd Lake. However, um, once you're up the dirt road a little bit, you there's times when you can hardly see anybody. So it's not like our our wildlands are getting loved to death. You can just go up the dirt road, you know, a handful of miles and you, and you won't see very many people. Um, so our goal as our nonprofit, one of our goals is to educate various user groups, how to coexist together. And, you know, that we're all, that we all basically have the same goal of enjoying the outdoors and how to kind of appreciate one another um, while you're out there, um, and also just kind of best use practices for our wildlands. Well, I'm glad you brought up the the shared use. Um, we've had that discussion on our show before. You know, the, it seems like the mountain bikers get annoyed at the motorcycle riders, and the the hikers sometimes get annoyed at the mountain bikers. It almost always seems like the slower mode of travel is the one that gets annoyed. <laughs> I might be wrong. <laughs> it's very true. <laughs> so what you're talking about, so people understand, is that potentially a snowmobile coming around a corner and here's someone that's cross-country skiing in the same area. And so the cross-country skier is like, well, it used to be quiet. Now I'm breathing this this uh, snowmobile exhaust and I've got to make way for this person to get by. Um, I can see how that could potentially feel annoying. What advice would you have for people so that they can enjoy the shared trail better? Well, we've, we've been working with um, snow mo- motorized users basically on how they can actually present 
a, a better experience for other users like cross-country skiers. And we encourage them to slow down and, you know, smile, say hi to the, the cross-country skiers. Because a lot of times a smile can just go a long way. If you know that, you know, the other people are, are having fun too, you're less likely to get kind of ticked off at them um, for enjoying your peace and quiet for a few seconds. Um, but, you know, I mean, the other thing is, is that we're, we're also talking about kind of a corridor um, and this corridor is a dirt road. And so, yeah, that dirt road is going to see some traffic. But once you kind of venture off that dirt road, you're not necessarily going to see the same amount of traffic. So cross-country skiers can enjoy a lot of areas um, off of these dirt roads as well. And we're also encouraging that, you know, that they should be enjoying some of those areas as well. Well, I really like your point that the snowmobiles allow cross-country skiers to get deeper into uh, the mountains to areas where the snowpack is safer and where the experience can be even more fun. And so it's funny because what you're saying is that the snowmobilers that the cross-country skiers might be upset about might be the cross-country skiers themselves in a lot of cases. Here, yeah, that's 100% true. I mean, you know, we are... Myself, I'm a cross-country skier. I'm a snowmobiler. I'm a backcountry skier. I do everything out there, and I, I'm lucky that I get to see everything from multiple perspectives. And that's the case for many residents in in our in our town of Crested Butte. Well, specifically, if uh, if you could shape the Forest Service decisions on this winter use plan, what would be what you think would be more of an ideal approach to the access? I mean. I don't think we need to reshape anything. I think keeping it the way that it is, is great. And just letting them know that we're happy with the way it is, is perfect. Um, If we do shut down some access to motorized use, what will happen is the motorized use will be more condensed in certain areas and make those areas less pleasant for more quiet users. Mm. Yeah, good point. So if our listeners want to know more about this and they have an interest in one side or the other or all sides of this discussion, um, how can they get more information? On our website at sharetheslate.com. That's that's the best way. You can also find us on Facebook. So Brittany, share the slate. Um, Not sure how that applies exactly to what your, uh, your organization's purposes are. Where did that name come from? Some of our access issues um, primarily revolve around a specific drainage in Crested Butte called the Slate River Drainage. Um, the road that goes into that drainage is the Slate River Road. So um, the kind of the heart of our struggles really does focus around the use of that area specifically um, more than others, although all the drainages do apply. But for some reason, everybody seems to be focused on that one more than the others. So that's why it's called Share the Slate. And our logo says Share the Slate, Share the Valley, because we believe that in keeping and maintaining access for, for all users. Okay, very cool. And I guess what action would you like for people to take, Brittany, in this situation to keep trails balanced in their usage? I think, you know, and this goes for everywhere in the country, not just our local area, but be informed, know what's going on, Um, do your research. Um, If people are interested in our specific local issue, if they visit sharethislate.com, there's a way to get um, periodic updates and you can sign up for our email list. And we help educate and uh, make people aware of what issues are, you know, we're having in our local area. 
Right. Um, but, you know, there's there's organizations similar to ours forming all over the country. So, you know, I'm sure your every local area will have its own ways of getting getting their their information. Um, you know, your Forest Service can also just provide a lot of information. They've been very helpful. And any questions that we ask, they're, they're pretty good at about answering. Well, one of the reasons why I wanted to go ahead and talk about access issues with you guys, since you're kind of on the point there in the Crested Butte area, is because I think this is a common theme across the United States. It's uh, it's a common theme everywhere, and I wanted to help our listeners maybe be a little bit more aware that there are ongoing uh, public land management issues, access questions that people are trying to answer. And, you know, some people feel like... I'm just going to say it. There are people out there that feel like humans are the problem and that nature needs to be protected from us. There are other people that feel that humans need to work to conquer nature. And both extremes are are a little bit ridiculous. You know, I am a big proponent of working in symbiosis with nature to care for nature and be a part of nature. Because frankly, even though we're humans and we live in cities a lot these days, we are natural and nature is our home. And so I I see humans as a part of nature. We just really need education on how to manage it in the best possible way. Exactly. And we we have pretty much the same beliefs as well. And our organization is really striving striving to, um, you know, find that good balance between access and education and allowing people to love the places that we live. Yeah, for sure. So, Frank, just... uh, a quick question. Don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but what about the threat of public lands, of federal lands being transferred to the states? And and we know about the the discussion around outdoor retailer perhaps leaving Utah because of a, such a threat. What's going on with that? Yeah, you know, I'm I'm not as much of an expert on on that by any means. Uh, like we were just talking about, I think it starts locally, and people need to really uh, start there. But uh, like you just said, there was there was a bill introduced that to transfer um, our federal lands into, into state uh, hands. And uh, while that might not seem like a big deal, it, it certainly can be. I think uh, certain states could maybe be a lot more uh, a lot more into a lot of mining, a lot of logging, um, and perhaps not protecting the lands the way the federal government uh, has been. Uh, and I think another question that people have posed is, uh, will those lands then go from state all the way to private? Um, you know, a state like Utah, are they going to, you know, sell, sell off those lands to as well? Um, and that could be years down the road too, you know, um, a state could be in a little bit of financial trouble and say, Oh, okay, well, let's just sell off all of our lands and we'll be back in the black. Mm. And, uh, these are all questions that people are concerned about for sure. Yeah, no doubt. Well, hopefully all of our listeners today realize that access to public lands is an ongoing um, in some places, it's a debate. In some places, it's just an ongoing management plan. And I like it that we can build awareness. And, you know, if you are someone who enjoys backpacking in public lands, that sort of thing, then I think it pays to keep your ear to the ground, uh, know what's going on with access issues with the Forest Service, help to provide the Forest Service with the type of feedback that they need so that they can make informed decisions about access. And I think just general awareness can really benefit us all. It, it, Like we said earlier, it's such a beautiful national treasure, you know, the public lands that we have. And I appreciate you guys for uh, bringing that discussion to the Adventure Sports Podcast today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you bet. 
And one more time, how can people get in touch with you guys? So we have multiple websites, and I want to mention also, you're still working on your book. We mentioned it in episode 106 and 107, but the book about backcountry skiing across Colorado, um, I know that it's still top secret. You can't tell us a whole lot, but <laughs> what do you have to share about your book? It's um, it's coming out soon. <laughs> so look for it very soon yeah it, it, we're, i don't think we're allowed to say exactly when it's coming out um but it it will be available very soon all right so if people want to learn more they should just pay attention to your website right so you have a website that was a blog about your uh your 14er skiing and you also update that with other outdoor activities what is that website that website is 14erskiers.com and that's spelled one four so like the numbers one four E-R-S-K-I-E-R-S, so 14erskiers.com. Which is a really cool website, by the way. I, I, I would encourage all of our listeners, spend a little time on that. It It's really neat. Great pictures, great stories, cool stuff. And then again, Frank, what is your website for your realty business? Well, thanks for mentioning that. Yeah, it would be Crested Butte Real Estate Agent. No uh, no spaces or anything like that. So CrestedButteRealEstateAgent.com. And then, uh, of course, we've been talking about ShareTheSlate.com would be where you can learn about our, our uh, nonprofit that's uh, hoping to keep our continued access to our public lands here in Crested Butte. Thanks for what you guys are doing. I love it that you uh, are bringing awareness about these issues. I love it that you're giving us a book about how to backcountry ski in Colorado, that you've shared your experiences about your 14er skiing with us. I mean, everything is great. And when you share like that, it benefits everybody else, not just yourselves. So thank you for being champions of these causes. Really appreciate it. Thanks for letting us tell our story. Thanks. Uh, you bet. And until the next show, as I always say, get out there and have some fun. Hey, check out Gary Collins' new book, Going Off the Grid, the how-to book of simple living and happiness. Now available in Amazon and Kindle format at primalpowermethod.com.